Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together this evening. Thank you for the opportunity we have to study the Word of God, and thank you for giving us the Word in our own language. What a privilege that is to be able to to hear from you directly from your Word. And thank you for those who have suffered and even died to bring it to us even today in our own language. We pray you'll bless us as we look at this section in the book of Acts that our hearts might be challenged and motivated, corrected, directed in the way we should go, that we might please you in all that we say and do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're looking tonight at uh, Paul's ministry at Corinth. At Corinth, we noticed we started that last time. Paul left Athens in chapter 18, verse 1, and he goes to Corinth. And there, of course, he met a Jew named Aquila from Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. This is the Emperor Claudius, who had expelled the Jews from Rome in A.D. 49. Now, this is uh, Paul's coming to Corinth, in about A.D. Uh, 50, he comes probably uh, maybe the fall of A.D. 50 and leaves in the spring of A.D. 52. So, uh, verse 3, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them every Sabbath. He reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade the Jews and Greeks. And we saw that here is Corinth. Paul goes to Corinth. Here's that famous canal we debated about last week. And I looked it up. It says four miles. All the sources say 6.4 kilometers, which they say is four miles approximately there. Um, we were looking at some things. Here's a famous stone that's been discovered at Corinth that cor- corroborates... Uh, a person from the Bible. Notice it says down there in 1929, this inscription was found mentioning Erastus as the one who paid for the paving of the street in return for his appointment as a city officer. It's likely that this is the same Erastus mentioned by Paul as sending greetings to the church at Rome. Now, why that is is because Paul writes the epistle to the Romans at Corinth later on his third missionary journey. We're on his second missionary journey. He's establishing the church at Corinth, but later on his third missionary journey, he will come back to Corinth, and there he will write the epistle to the Romans in about A.D. 56, 55, 56. This is 50. We're just starting here about A.D. 50, so sometimes later. But there, in the Epistle to the Romans, it says, Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. So many people think this is the same Erastus that Paul mentions, who is mentioned on this stone, who paid, who paid for the paving. The, the inscription says, Erastus, in return for his aedileship, laid the pavement at his own expense. So this was a common thing for people to pay for public works. So it might be the same Erastus, very possibly, that that Paul mentions there. Um, So all you Greek students, you see that? 
Rho, Alpha, Sigma, Tau, Upsilon, Sigma, Erastus. You see that? Erastus. There. The capital letters. Is the next letter a Rho or a P? It's a P. Okay. It's a P. P, Rho, uh, Lima. Um, let's look at uh, verse 5 here. Um, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So apparently Paul uh, was, was given, Silas and Timothy brought financial assistance, it says, from Macedonia. A couple of verses mention this. You remember 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing later. Now Paul is... This is AD 50, this is, this is about AD 56 later. When Paul's on his third missionary journey, he's writing this. He says, I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to you. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, right? These guys are coming from Macedonia. The brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way. Remember Philippians 4.15. More of as you Philippians know in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel when I set out from Macedonia, <laughs> Acts 16, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. So, so Paul here received some funds, probably from the church at Philippi maybe, and uh, he is able therefore not to have to work with Priscilla and Aquila apparently. He can devote himself exclusively to the preaching of the gospel. But when they, that is these Jews, opposed Paul and became abusive, he took out his clothes and shook out, shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own hands. I am innocent of it. Now I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul's following his pattern of first going to the Jews in the synagogue and now to the, to the Gentiles. Then Paul, next, Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. As I say, we have this name, Titius Justus, here. Uh, this suggests a Roman citizen whose nomen or family name was Titius and whose cognomen, like Paulus, like Paul was Justus. Uh, some people speculate that he's another person mentioned in the book of Acts, in, 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 uh, in the New Testament. Uh, so his name, remember the Romans had these three names, the uh, Prinomen and the Nomen. This is like, and the Cognomen. So this is this is Paul here. This is a family name. This would be like my name here. But what is this prinomen? This is like another name, a first name or maybe a nickname or something. So people speculate, since we know this was Titius Justus. People uh, some people speculate quite a bit that this man's uh, prinomen was was Gaius or Gaius. We don't really know that. That's because there is a man mentioned 
it says, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greetings. 1 Corinthians 1.14, I thank God I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. Now see, he mentions here Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and he mentions Titius Justus. So apparently it's Paul's policy to, when he first comes into a place and wins people to the Lord, he baptizes them, he establishes a church, but he doesn't keep on baptizing. Because remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the argument there is uh, people are saying, I am a Paul, I'm following Paul, remember that? And he says, no, that's wrong. He says, were you baptized in Paul's name? I didn't baptize any of you except two people. You know, you can't claim that that I'm your Lord or something or I'm your master. I only baptized two people. So he baptized Crispus, and that would seem to be the Crispus here, and he baptized Titius Justus. And he says, Gaius, or Gaius here, Gaius, I baptized Gaius. And then in Romans 16.23, remember this is written on the third missionary journey, written from Corinth. He's writing, he says, Gaius, whose hospitality I, the whole her church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. So people speculate that that was one of these first converts, Crispus and Titus Justus. They speculate that this was really his sort of first name, like Bill or something. It's speculation, but it's kind of interesting speculation nevertheless. It could be that same man. But we know Crispus, clearly here in verse 7, Paul did baptize him. Um, 1 Corinthians 1.14, clearly this would seem to be the same man that Paul mentions here, who is the uh, ruler of the synagogue, the synagogue leader, one of the leaders in the synagogue. He and his entire household believe in the Lord, and they're baptized. Well, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, don't be afraid, keep on speaking, don't be silent, I'm with you. No one's going to attack and harm you while I have many people, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. So, as I say, this was probably from the fall of A.D. 50 to the spring of A.D. 52. Remember, we get this date from the fact that Paul meets Gallio next. And we know that Gallio took up his uh, took up his uh, proconsulship July of AD fifty one, and people speculate that as soon as Gallio gets there, the Jews decide, "Hey, we got a new proconsul. Let's take this troublemaker Paul to him and see if he will issue some sort of decree by the Roman government and get rid of this guy and so forth." And so. They kind of speculate that would be in the middle of Paul's ministry here, so 51. Uh, During this uh, period of when Paul is in Corinth here, he writes 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Uh, Remember, we've seen Galatians, I think is the first epistle, AD 49. He writes 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, so this will be 50, 51, you know, we don't know exactly, so... Commonly, the date is around 51. He's writing back to the churches at Thessalonica that he established, you remember, in Acts chapter 17. And he's, he's writing, the, the Thessalonian epistles seem to indicate that he probably wrote from Corinth here. Well, uh, now we see uh, page 25, Paul before the proconsul. Uh, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, 
the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. So Gallio is a well-known Roman. We know a lot about this man. He was the son of Marcus Ananias Seneca, or Seneca the Elder, who was a Spanish rhetorician, and younger brother of Lucius Ananias Seneca, Seneca the Younger, the famous Stoic philosopher. So one of the most famous men in the ancient world was a man by the name of Seneca. He lived during Paul's time. We call him Seneca. But uh, he was a famous Stoic philosopher. He would have been a contemporary of the Apostle Paul. I'm sure Paul would have known about this person, whether he would have ever met him or not. We don't really know. Uh, so uh, this Gallio, I'm saying here, his real name was Marcus Ananias Novatus. Now notice the Ananias is the family name. So the father's family name is Ananias the Seneca the Younger, who is the famous Stoic philosopher, his name is Ananias. So Gallio's real name was Marcus Ananias Novatus. But he was adopted by a wealthy Roman, Lucius Junius Gallio, and thereafter bore the name of his adoptive father. So this really kind of illustrates the Roman principle of adoption. The Roman principle of adoption was simply what we would call, it's sort of like writing a will, leaving money to a person, leaving your wealth to a person. So if you were a, if you were a wealthy Roman and you wanted to, and automatically your, your, your uh, wealth, your house, your property would go to your family, go to your son, it would be automatic. But what if you were childless? Like... Uh, um, his father, like his, his adoptive father, Gallagher. What if he was childless? Well, then you could adopt someone. You, did, you didn't always, you didn't have to be childless to adopt someone. You could adopt someone if you just wanted to bestow your wealth on that person. Julius Caesar adopted Octavian, the guy who became Augustus Caesar. He adopted, he, Julius Caesar had, had descent, but he adopted him. And by adopting him, it's like saying you are, you're, you're, it's like making a will. But the person has to take your name. So this person, this person Gallio here is wealthy himself. He comes from a very wealthy family, but he has this person. Some people think this is his uncle. Many people ever believe this guy is his uncle. His uncle has this wealth and he has no one to leave it to. So he leaves it to the younger son here of Seneca, who wouldn't inherit necessarily, and he takes his name, Gallio. So we know he's mentioned a lot in various Roman texts. And remember, this is a senatorial province. Rome had two kinds of provinces, an imperial province, which was really sort of run by the military generally. Legions were stationed there because it was uh, unruly and still disruptive. Then there were the senatorial provinces, which were calm, peaceful sort of provinces, and they were governed by people of the senatorial class. So the highest class in Rome was the senatorial class, people who served in the Senate or their children and so forth. And so uh, the proconsul means for the consul. So this was a person of the highest class, the senatorial class. They would be made governors in these provinces. So Gallio is made proconsul of Achaia in 1 July AD 51. We know something about him. He was known to be anti-Semitic, 
but that's just pretty common in the Roman Empire. They didn't really, Romans were, as a rule, fairly anti-Semitic. So he's a proconsul, a senatorial province. Achaia is governed by this uh, senatorial, uh, this, uh, pro, this provincial governor, this proconsul, Gallia. So when he becomes proconsul, maybe maybe right there at the beginning, this is the theory, that the Jews decide they're going to make a united attack on Paul because we've got this new governor here and we're going to see if we can get him to make some sort of ruling against the apostles, some, some official Roman ruling here by a Roman, a well-known Roman official. So if a guy like Gallio would condemn Paul, this set a, would set a real precedent in the Roman Empire. But if a well-respected senator, ex-senator like Gallio, he's now he's governor. If he would, if he would, if he would condemn Paul and Christianity. So up until this time, there's been no official condemnation of Christianity. There's been persecution, but no real official. If they could get him to issue a sort of a ruling, then other governors would look at this and say, "Oh, these Christians are really a problem," and so forth. And so this this is a, a this is probably why Luke mentions this and devotes a a fair amount of space here to it. Uh, Verse 13, this man, that is Paul they charge, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. That is Roman law. So they're charging him with preaching an illegal religion. Just as Paul was about to speak, now they bring him before, this is Corinth again, and there's that Bema. Bema just means the judgment seat. Um... Now, this, what, this would have been a platform, and there would have been buildings and all this, so we just have the raised platform here with Acre Corinth in the back. But this was this is a place in the forum where they would have brought him before the proconsul here, we believe. And so just as about Paul was beginning to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So as we say here, Gallio saw the dispute between Paul and the Jews as an intramural religious dispute. The reference to words and names may be alluded to the claim that Jesus is the Christ. But Gallio, Paul, was just preaching a variety of Judaism that did not happen to suit the leaders of the Jewish community of Corinth, which was not for the reason to be declared an illegal religion. Gallio's responsibility, as he saw it, was to judge civil and criminal cases, not to be an arbiter of intramural religious disputes. Thus, he did not need to hear Paul's defense, but ejected the plaintiffs from the forum as not having a case worth being heard by a proconsul. And we see here, that's exactly what happened. Settle this matter among yourselves. So he drove them off. He drove them off from the judgment seat. And so, as I say, the importance of this decision was profound. If Gallio had accepted this Jewish charge and found Paul guilty of an alleged offense, then other governors could have used this as precedent. And Paul's ministry certainly, I think, would have been restricted. And so this sort of amounts to, in a backhanded way, a sort of a recognition or at least an acceptance of Christianity. We're not, we're not condemning this. This is Paul preaching. A, so it, I think Luke mentions it because it, it means that Paul can go on his ministry. He's not going to be prosecuted by Roman officials 
uh, directly at this point. Official condemnation doesn't come some years later till Nero. Nero sort of officially starts condemning Christians, the Nero, Emperor Nero, blaming Christians for the fire at Rome, and that's where the, the, the sort of official Roman persecution begins then. So uh, the crowd then turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatever. Uh, I say the crowd were Greeks who beat Sosthenes in an outbreak of anti-Semitism, and Gallio turned a blind eye to what was going on because he wanted to teach a lesson to those who would waste his time with such trivial matters. It's not clear whether he was a believer or a non-believer. That is, who is this Sosthenes? They turn on the Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler. Is he a believer uh, that a Jewish that the Jews are, are, are beating here, or is he a non-believer? Uh, it's hard to know. Again, people sometimes try to connect this with 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Remember, Paul is writing back to the Corinthians here. He says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God our brother, and our brother Sosthenes to the church at Corinth. So Paul often, in this salutation of his letters, will mention people who are with him at the time he is writing. They're not co-authors or anything, but they're with him. And when Paul is writing this, there's somebody named Sosthenes with him. And so people say, hey, is this the Sosthenes? Well, it's not, not there's not much, a great connection here because Paul is writing 1 Corinthians from the city of Ephesus. From the city of Ephesus, as we'll see a little later here, in about AD 55, on his third missionary journey. And this Sosthenes is in Corinth. So the only way this could be true, if this, if this guy named Sosthenes left Corinth and went to Ephesus, you know what I mean? And Sosthenes is not an uncommon name, but you'll just see discussions about that, that maybe he did, maybe he became a follower of Paul, maybe he went with him, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe. You know, <laughs> we can't know all those kinds of things. Well, uh, we come to page uh, 26 then. Paul's return, this is the end of his third missionary journey now, his return uh, to Palestine, Syria, Acts 18, 18 through 22. I've got, I think I've got 23, 18, 18 through 23, but it should be 18, 18, verse 18 through verse 22, actually, for this section here. This is Paul's return back to Palestine, back to Antioch. It says, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. So you see, that's how we get that those dates we're talking about. Remember, we said July of AD 51, but Paul didn't leave until about AD 52. So that's a year and a half. AD 50 to AD 52, the fall of AD 50, the spring of AD 52, that's a year and a half. He says, says he was there for about 18 months. So Paul stays on a little while. This is because this thing happens probably July, of, sometime around the summer of 51. He stays on to the spring of 52. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria. So this is back home to Antioch. Accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. He met them here in Corinth and they go with him. Uh, before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sincrea because of a vow he had taken. Now he's, remember, this is uh, Corinth here. 
Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sincrea. Remember, Sincrea is a suburb. It's this port city down here to the Aegean. This is how you'd sail. Remember, that was the, here's the Aegean out here. So Pauli was a port here, not, not, a, not seen today, an ancient port where Paul would have got on a ship and sailed. Uh, it says uh, he had his hair cut off at Sincrea because of a vow he had taken. What in the world does that mean? Um, well, as I say here, Luke does not say. So remember, this is the book of Acts. We're, 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 we're reading about the ministry of the Apostle Paul. This is descriptive truth. We have to, we have to remember that uh, you know, we're in a transition phase here with the beginning of the church and so forth. Uh, we have Judaism still going with the temple, people still offering sacrifices and so forth. Uh, you know, it, we, we're, trying to, we're trying to manage this transition between Judaism and the new Christianity and so forth and so on. Um, I was going to say about Acts, it's difficult to know here. Remember, uh, basically when we get to the New Testament, if we're trying to find out what we should do specifically, we're looking primarily at the epistles where Paul issues commands, do this, do that. Do this, do that. He's writing to churches, you know. Uh, when we're reading the book of Acts, you know, we read things there, and certainly if we see certain patterns developing and so forth, we want to see if those are patterns we should be following. I'm just saying, here's a difficult incident to know, you know, should we grow our hair long and take vows and, and that kind of thing? It's probably not likely. You know, we shouldn't probably use this one incident to start a new tradition at CBC. <laughs> we're going to start wearing our hair long, taking vows, cutting our hair. There's not much to go on here. Now, I, what's that? You already did, you already did it? Okay. She's already taken up the cause. <laughs> the, the theory is is that this may be a Nazarite vow. Remember the, Naz, the Nazarite vow in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 6? Probably, this is a theory, Paul probably had taken a vow sometime earlier in Corinth probably in thankfulness for God's blessing. So Paul says, thank you, God, and I'm going to show my thankfulness by taking this vow. And remember, in number six, it gives various regulations about a Nazarite. He won't cut his hair, won't drink any wine, uh, any you know, alcoholic beverages or anything like that. There's various things that this person would do in, in, in terms of thankfulness or dedication to God. The cutting of the hair indicated the termination of the vow. However, such a vow had to be fulfilled at Jerusalem where the hair would be presented to God and sacrifices offered. Because the hair was not cut off at Jerusalem, Paul had to undergo a 30-day period of cleansing in Jerusalem before the vow could be completed. Now, we'll see later he does that in Acts chapter 21, or at least we kind of read about it. So, it's hard to know what to make of this. Paul, as we said, Paul didn't give up all his cultural... Uh, Practices as a Jew. He still wore Jewish clothing and so forth. He went to the synagogue. Apparently, he observed Sabbath laws. He, when he was with Jews, he didn't eat certain, he restricted his diet and so forth and so on. So, uh, apparently, this is some sort of thanksgiving as part of his bringing up his religion as a Jewish religion. He doesn't see this as uh, necessarily being contrary to Christianity for him as a Jew to do this kind of thing. But 
we're not clear here. The text doesn't tell us too much about this. I'm just speculating about the Nazarite because we don't know anything else. Yes? Bill, there's a cross-reference to James where it says don't swear at all. Uh, there are places in the New Testament where it seems like there there is swearing. Uh, but what, just a quick note about the James passage. Uh, that's not... That's not an absolute thing, uh, as far as I know, because yeah. uh, we can take vows as Christians. I know some groups, you know. Well, I don't know if this is a. Don't, I think swearing in a vow, we're slightly on different territory, a little bit. Well, a little bit, but in the they're kind of in the general thing. I mean, it seems like uh, like at the end of some passages, Paul is almost telling the people. I mean, almost putting them under a vow. So he's putting that to pass yeah. on the yeah. material of that. Yeah, book. yeah. Well, I guess I've always distinguished between vows, sort of, and swearing. Like you say, frivolous oaths. We don't want to be taking frivolous oaths, which I guess you could say would be a vow. Yeah. So the Bible condemns frivolous kinds of oaths, uh, which was what Jesus seemed to be saying: "Don't swear by this. Don't swear." Which is what Jews were doing. They were corrupting. The, the system of you know oaths by saying I can swear on this or not swear on this and you know kind of a corrupt system there I think is what's going on. This is if we if I, if this is right, this is somehow Paul expressing his thankfulness to God maybe for some deliverance or something that he's doing and he's going to complete it at Jerusalem. This is tough. I wish I had all the answers here because. As you mentioned earlier, when we get to Acts 21, we see Paul going there. He's paying the money for these people to be purified in the temple at Jerusalem. So in Paul's mind, he doesn't see, you know, he doesn't seem to see what's going on in the temple at Jerusalem as being contrary to New Testament Christianity at the time, does he? I mean, if you read the book of Hebrews, it looks like what's going on in the temple is, but Hebrews is... You know, is um, you know probably later, maybe later, possibly we don't know for sure. Maybe later than the temple, but it's you know I don't know. Paul apparently sees a transition here, yeah, and doesn't see what's going on in the temple as somehow uh, being contrary to what Christ has done and so forth. Seems to be what's what's happening. Um. So it's unknown whether uh, Silas and Timothy went with Paul. Remember, we had Paul, Silas, and Timothy together here. Luke had stayed back at Philippi. So it's unknown whether Silas and Timothy... Silas is not mentioned again in the book of Acts. Remember, Silas was the fellow who joined Paul from Jerusalem on the second missionary journey, went with him, you remember, over to Philippi and so forth and so on, and came with him, came with him all this distance. He's not mentioned again. Timothy is mentioned later in uh, Acts 19.22 with Paul at Ephesus. Now, whether Silas, you know, we just don't know whether Luke just didn't tell us and they went with him or not. We're just not clear about that. Well, it says uh, they arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So Paul comes to Ephesus here. Now remember, at the start of this missionary journey, 
you remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul had wanted to go towards this way. You remember? And he wanted to go up to Bithynia. But the Spirit said, no, you can't come here, and you can't come here. And he goes over to Troas, he gets the Macedonian call and comes down. Well, now he is coming over to Ephesus here, uh, finally, uh, in Acts chapter 18 here. Um, as I say here, uh, Ephesus uh, is uh, the capital of Asia. So here's the province of Asia. You see the blue line right there? comes down through here. So this is Asia. Uh, F, this is the Ephesus is the capital of Asia, which became a Roman province in about 84 BC. It was on the Castor River. It's on a river here, kind of in said that comes out here. Uh, it's been, as we'll see in the pictures, it's been silted up. It wasn't at the time of Paul, but now it's silted up. Um, I say it was the leading commercial center of Asia Minor. Maybe a population of 250,000. It was a free Greek city with its own assembly. Uh, I should have put some more notes in there about this. Uh, Ephesus was most, noticed, most noted for its worship of Artemis, the Greek goddess Artemis. Now remember, the Greeks and the Romans had uh, the same pantheon of gods. Now they had different names. Jupiter was the Roman name. Zeus was the Greek name. Zeus on Mount Olympus, Jupiter on Mount Olympus. So they had, except like Apollo was the same in both. The the equivalent of of, of uh, the the equivalent of Artemis is the Latin Diana. Latin Diana. When I took Greek, when I took Latin, I remember, you know, you study a lot of mythology with that. But Diana in Roman mythology, she was sort of. Uh, she was sort of uh, like a tomboy kind of thing. She was seen as kind of a huntress and, you know, the bow and arrow, and she was, you know, cunning and stuff like that. Sort of, I say tomboy kind of thing like that. Uh, and what happens is in different communities, these gods and goddesses take on different, different uh, ideas because people... Uh, bring their own local ideas onto the pantheon, and they just they're just accepted and adopted and so forth. And here in Ephesus, uh, Artemis is a fertility goddess. Uh, she had her own temple in Ephesus, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was four times larger than the pantheon. I can't show it to you because it's not there. I'll show you. I'll show you where it was at in here. But uh, remember the Pantheon we saw there on, uh, I mean, the Parthenon we saw, uh, the Parthenon we saw in Athens, how big that was. Well, this was four times bigger than the Parthenon. So this was a huge building. Uh, it stood till 8263 until the Goths sacked Ephesus. Artemis is a fertility goddess. Here's her picture. She's pictured with these protrusions. Now, people say two things about them. These are either breasts, or some people think they're eggs. Now, fertility was an important thing in the ancient world. It was extremely important. This is one of the main things that brought people to religion was fertility. You wanted fertility for yourself. You wanted a lot of children. 
because they can work your land, work your farm, and all that kind of stuff. But you wanted fertility for your animals. And so if you didn't have fertility, the gods were, were condemning you, some curse on you. So you would come to a place like Ephesus and come to the temple here and pray for fertility. So it was just a huge, important thing here. Uh, each, each year, one month was devoted to ceremonies in honor of Artemis at Ephesus. People would come from over the ancient world for this month of celebration. There were athletic games. There were plays. There were concerts and everything. Here's Ephesus, um, the Civic Agora, kind of like the Roman Forum, the rectangular kind of thing. There's not a lot left here. Now, if you go there today, you'll see more. I'm not going to show you some of the other stuff that's there. If you went, Has anybody been to Ephesus? Nobody's been? Okay. Well, you'll see some stuff there that was built later than the Apostle Paul. There's a famous kind of library there. So here is the uh, Agora from that theater. And later we'll see Paul in that theater because, remember, uh, they try to they rush into that theater uh, a little later here. Um, so you can imagine this rectangular thing, and uh, you know you can imagine these these columns here and beautiful columns and so forth with shops and so forth around. So it was quite a magnificent place. Here's a mosaic, beautiful mosaics would have been on the street. This was just a tremendous, beautiful place. It's, I mean, sometimes you read people, they describe it as the Disney world, the ancient world, because people would come there to visit and, and to shop and to, uh, and to worship the gods and, you know, and to, and to have recreation and so forth. It was just uh, quite a popular place. Here's a street in Ephesus and so forth. Here's the temple of Ephesus ruins. <laughs> What's left? One column there. <laughs> One column from the temple of Ephesus ruins there. That is all that is left from the temple. So it was a magnificent thing. We know about it. People talk about it. People describe it. But nothing is really left of this particular temple. Well, it says that Paul left Priscilla and Aquila there. Uh, as I say, they remained in Ephesus and were there in A.D. 55. Now, this is A.D. 52. Paul has left Corinth. He's come to Ephesus. This is about A.D. 52. We know he was, they were there in A.D. 55 hosting a church in their house when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. So, um, Paul, um, Paul leaves them, Paul leaves them there, I'm trying to, don't get you too confused here. Paul leaves them here, and he goes on back to Antioch, back to Jerusalem, Antioch, and then he'll come back to Ephesus. And when he comes back to Ephesus, he'll spend three years there. We'll see that in just a second. And that's what this is talking about. Three years, Paul will spend three years there. He'll write 1 Corinthians. He says, and Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla, they have a house, in, they have a church in their house. So he leaves them there. 
Priscilla and Aquila stay there. Uh, they're there in AD 55. However, by AD 56, when Paul wrote Romans, they're back. They went back to Rome. Uh, Acts 16, uh, Acts 16:3 says so. They they left Rome. They came to Corinth. They went with the Apostle Paul to Ephesus. They stay there from about 52, 55, but 56, they come back to Rome. We know that from the book of Romans. They were able to return because Claudius died in 54. Remember, the emperor Claudius in AD 49 expelled the Jews from Rome. And these kinds of expulsions usually lasted as long as the person was alive, the emperor was alive. And so when he died, usually these things were uh, terminated. So he dies in AD 54, and they return eventually. And by 56, when Paul is writing to the Romans, they are back in Rome. We see, we'll see them back there again. So he left and went to the synagogue. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will be, come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed in Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So Paul goes to Caesarea here. He travels uh, to Caesarea from Ephesus. He leaves Aquila and Priscilla there. This is about AD 52, getting into 53 here. He comes down, comes back to, uh, comes to Caesarea he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church. So he goes to Jerusalem, greets the church, and then it says he goes back to Antioch, returning to his home church here, just like he did in Acts chapter 14. Remember, after the first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14, he comes back to Antioch. Acts, here we are in Acts 18, the end of the second missionary journey, he returns back to Antioch. Now, it says he went up to Jerusalem. Presumably, he completed his vow there. All it says is he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So, theoretically, he, we assume he, whatever that vow was, if that was an Azrite vow, he completed the vow then. All right, let's come now to the third missionary journey. Acts 1823 through 2116. The first part of this is back at Galatia. So every missionary journey, Paul's been in Galatia. The first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14, Paul established churches in Galatia. The second missionary journey, Acts 16, he goes through the area of Galatia. Now the third missionary journey, he's going back to Galatia. It says, verse 23, after spending some time in Antioch, we don't know how long, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place, throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So Paul comes from Antioch. I don't know how he, if he went totally by land here or not, but he comes back and he says he goes back through the area of Galatia. Most This is probably technically be translated Galactic Phrygia. So it's this area of Galatia down here, the southern Galatia. He goes back through there, strengthening those churches that were established on his first missionary journey. So Paul is now on his third missionary journey. 
This is the longest, probably, of his missionary journeys. Um, according to Acts 20.31, he spends three years just in Ephesus. So that's a long, long time in one particular place. And on page 27, you can see the map there that we'll be kind of following here as we go along. Um, now we come to Ephesus, Acts 18, 24 through 1940. Now Paul's already been to Ephesus, remember? He left Aquila and Priscilla there, remember, at Ephesus. And he's come back to Jerusalem and back to Antioch. And now he's going to come and go to Ephesus. So he's going to go right through Galatia and right to Ephesus. But something's happening in the meantime. It says in verse uh, 24, Meanwhile, meanwhile, that is between Paul's two visits. So Paul is here in Galatia and over in Ephesus. Meanwhile, between these two visits, Acts 18, 19, Paul doesn't show up again until Acts 19, 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul went took the road in, in Tyria and arrived at Ephesus. So Paul will come right over here to Ephesus, as we'll see in Acts 19. But while Paul is, is on the beginning of this third missionary journey, while he's in Galatia or somewhere there, meanwhile it says, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Here is Alexandria way down here in Egypt, you remember. There's Ephesus up there. Uh, Alexander was founded by Alexander the Great in 331, named after him. It was the capital of Egypt, second largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome. Alexandria had a po population of more than a half a million people, including a large Jewish population. Egypt was very important to Rome, extremely important, because they got all, most of their grain came from Egypt. They got tremendous grain. There was constantly ships. They would come up here. They come. Up. They didn't like to sail out here in the middle of the ocean. They would sail up here, come along the coast here, sail along here. <laughs> they come over to Corinth. They unload. Come over here. I mean, they, they just didn't like to go out and see because you don't know what storms come. You just don't know. And they only sold. They didn't sell in the winter time. They, they would. If they never, you know, unless they just absolutely had to, from about November on, they just didn't didn't sell because these, these storms would come and these smaller ships they had, you know, would be uh, torn up and blown all over the place. Just like the Apostle Paul, we'll see later, he gets into a storm and is almost killed. So Alexandria was extremely important here. This Jew from Alexandria had a large Jewish population. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. We assume the Old Testament scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Okay, what does that mean? He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus, okay, accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He knew about Jesus, but he only knew about the baptism of John. I say here, the expression taught taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John, may mean that Apollos was familiar only with the teaching of John the Baptist regarding Jesus, which would include the fact that he was the Messiah and possibly something about his early ministry. 
This could mean he knew nothing of the finished work of Christ. Now I'm speculating here. I don't know. Could mean he knew nothing of the finished work, Pentecost, Christian baptism. I don't know. It says he knew only the baptism of John. Obviously it means he didn't know Christian baptism, but how much of the work of Christ did he know? How much did he really know? Perhaps he had received this teaching from one of John's disciples, so Kent and Longnecker. One of the things the early church fathers talk a lot about is that some people never got over John. That is, they were disciples of John to the end. Uh, This is talked about in church history and so forth, that some people just continued to hang on to John and stayed disciples of John. There are reports of John's disciples at Ephesus, you know, here we are, you know, there's there's reports about this in church history and so forth, so it, it's, it's, it's unclear here. So that's, that's, that's why we have this speculation. Maybe they got this teaching from John's disciples. It's also possible that his knowledge of Jesus included a full gospel presentation, except for Christian baptism. That is, he only knew the baptism of John. So maybe he knew about salvation through Christ. He just didn't know about Christian baptism. It just says he only knew the baptism of John. Now, you expect me to have all the answers here, but I just don't have the answer on this one. This, this, is, this is a tough one. And if you think I don't know the answers here, where do we get to Acts 19? <laughs> That's even tougher. Luke just doesn't explain all these things to us, and we can speculate a lot here, but it's, it's unclear sometimes as to what exactly is going on. Uh, However, the fact that he was instructed in the way of God more adequately may imply that he was lacking in more areas than just baptism. I don't know. He is said to speak with great fervor, which is literally fervent in spirit. The ESV and New American Standard more literally say fervent in spirit. Now, the word spirit could be a reference to the Holy Spirit, but the translations universally take it as the human spirit, thus the NIV with great fervor. So the problem is, one of the problems we have is in the earliest manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, there, are, there is no differentiation between small letters and capital letters. The letters are all the same. They're all just the same capital letters, you know, we talked about so you can't tell whether, you know, we can't tell. Now, if you, if you can't tell whether this word, you can't tell whether that's going to be that or whether that's going to be a capital P. You know, it could be a small P, pneuma, or it could be a large P. I mean, we don't know because they didn't, the manuscripts don't say that. So when translators translate the word spirit, they have to decide, is this the Holy Spirit or is this the human spirit? Or is this just like, you know, he's got a good spirit, you know. It, it, spirit can mean different things. And so here you can see uh, the ESV, you know, they all take it as sort of human, fervent in spirit. The NIV says with great fervor. So nobody takes it as the Holy Spirit. But maybe it could be. We just don't know. The fact that he is said... It is not said he is not said to have repented or believed or been baptized suggests he was already regenerate. So it doesn't say that. Now, 
In addition, Apollos seems to be contrasted with the men in the 12 men in, in chapter 19 in that he is not said to have received the Spirit. So, one way to try to figure out what is going on with Apollos is to try to contrast him with what comes next in the writings of Luke here. And what comes next is these men that Paul meets in Acts 19, and there it's very clear these men are not apparently saved. They don't have the Spirit. And I'm just saying that it doesn't say here that Apollos does not have the Spirit. It doesn't say he is baptized or anything. Um, Some commentators suggest here that the reason he is, well, he could have been baptized, the text just doesn't say. Maybe he was baptized after this. After they instructed him more fervently, maybe he was baptized. Some people say maybe he falls into the class of disciples like the early Christians, the early disciples themselves. Remember, John was baptizing people. And some of John's disciples came over to Jesus. But it doesn't say that they were rebaptized by Jesus. You have a kind of transition period there before the giving of the Great Commission. And so was everybody who received John's ministry, did they have to be rebaptized? When they were baptized by John, were they rebaptized by Jesus in the Christian church again? Apparently not in this transition kind of thing. So this is one theory as to... But, of course, we don't know. The text does not say, you know, there could be things going on here we don't know. But it looks like, if I had to guess, if I had to guess, (laughs) if I had to guess, um, I think probably he was saved. I would think he probably was saved, but he just had incomplete knowledge, and that's what we have here. And they sort of instruct him more fully on the way. So my guess is he probably was born again. He was regenerate. But we're in this transition where not everybody has full knowledge of what's going on. Contrast to what appears to be in Acts 19, the next stage here, it looks like those men there, they might be saved, but it certainly doesn't look like it. And I'll try to show that there. Did you have a question, Bob? Yeah, the thing about John's baptism, though, one, uh, one point about it is actually that John was the baptism of repentance or remission of sins. And remember what he said about it to the uh, scribes and Pharisees. He said, bring me some meat for repentance before I baptize you. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say that Apollos did repent. Yeah, yeah. You mean repent? There, when, there had to be a repentance. repentance when, yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 I think that's right. I think that's right. It only says he knew of John's baptism. We assume he had experienced John's baptism, you're saying, which meant he had repented and and so forth and so on. And that's what we have, remember, with progressive revelation. Remember, we believe in progressive revelation. And so we say that, you know, if we're talking about how people are saved, we say that um, people of all ages are saved on the basis of the death of Christ. That is, if Adam was saved, he was saved because one day Christ would die on the cross for his sins, even though it hadn't happened yet. Remember, Romans 3 talks about that. that, 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 uh, that that's the basis. Um, the means of salvation has always been by faith. But the, the content of that faith has been a progressive thing. That is, Adam didn't know as much as we know. 
our Old Testament saints, Abraham didn't know everything that we know about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Trinity and all that kind of thing. So what we have here in the case of John the Baptist coming along, we have John gave a certain amount of revelation. If you accepted that, you were saved. John's people were saved. If you, if you repented, accepted what John said about the coming Messiah, then people were saved based on that, certainly. But, but that wasn't the complete knowledge, and maybe that's what's happening here, that Apollos was saved, but he got this complete knowledge later on. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Verse 27, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, Achaia, remember, is Corinth. Um, Here's Corinth here. Achaia is the province down here. So Apollos is here in Ephesus, but he wants to go over to Achaia, which means Corinth. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by the grace had believed, for he was vigorously for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So Apollos goes to Corinth, and he has a fruitful <clears throat> ministry. Now we know that, true, because when Paul comes to Ephesus here, one of the things he does, he writes a letter to Corinth. He writes a letter there, and he says, you remember in that letter, when one says, I'll follow Paul, another, I'll follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What after all is Paulus? What's Paul? Only servants that he came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each his task. I planted the seed... Now, this verse is usually misinterpreted to mean, you know, it's true that when we people get saved, they often takes a lot of evangelization. Most people don't get saved the first time they hear the gospel. And so somebody gives them the gospel, somebody else gives them the gospel. Sometimes that's described as this. But that's not what's done. When Paul says, I planted the seed, means he planted the church. Paul planted the church. And Apollos watered it. Apollos comes along later. I'm not saying nobody was saved under Apollos' ministry. But Apollos, he's saying Apollos comes along later after the establishment of the church and he waters it. He does this teaching. But it's God who has been making it grow. My point is, Paul is not disparaging Apollos here. He's thankful for Apollos and his ministry. They just had different ministries, as we see here. He was vigorous. He, he, he was a great help who by the grace had believed. So Apollos comes and he helps in the ministry here that we see from the Apostle Paul. All right, why don't we stop here right at Acts 18 and we'll pick up next time, Lord willing, at Acts 19. All right?